0: Welcome to the Forum Storytellers podcast. This is Forum President and CEO, Brian Whalen. Forum Storytellers shares and preserves stories about life and work in the field of education abroad. I hope that you enjoy the stories featured in this podcast. This is Mary Ann Grant at the third European Conference of the Forum on Education Abroad in Athens, Greece on October 6,
1: 2016. And I'm Mary Elizabeth Dubicki long-retired director of study abroad at the University of Kansas. Mary Elizabeth,
0: describe to us your education abroad experience, which I know happened
1: um, quite a few years ago. Quite a few. I left Sweet Bar College, where I was studying quite quickly, to go abroad in 1955 in January with a program that was sponsored by Hollins College. The program appealed to me because we left in January of the sophomore year. We spent time in Paris at the British Institute as well as a class at the Sorbonne, several small classes at the Sorbonne for foreigners. And then we spent three months of the summer traveling all over Europe to get a real feel for where we were and then came back in the fall and enrolled in regular classes with regular French students at the Sorbonne. Took our exams early and left Paris regrettably, on uh, in January of 1956. So when you studied abroad, you crossed the ocean by ship, is the, that right? The and then lining.
0: traveled around France by train?
1: Bus and train, yes. What was it like on the ship with your... Classmates, charming. It was lovely. We (laughs) we were in second class now. People, many people, don't even remember that there were three classes on ships. But because we were a group of forty young women, who were uh, all at the same age of nineteen or twenty, they gave us keys to come to the parties on the first. Uh, class in the evenings we were also able to meet with people in third class so that uh, we met young people who were partying and we met the adults who were also partying and we had wonderful food and it was a little bit of heaven.
0: What do you think you learned uh, that had the most impact on you
1: while you were abroad? I think I learned that most Americans were very naive about the rest of the world And I was ashamed in many ways that I had not learned so much about the country I was visiting, the life, the mores, and the current events. Now, you must remember that in 1955, we were 10 years away from the end of the Second World War. And they were still suffering terribly in France, and there was still rationing, and there was, you know, I used to wonder why they didn't have brighter (laughs) streetlights. I learned later, of course, that they couldn't afford the electricity, and they didn't allow them to have much electricity, and there was still a lot of deprivation as a result of being occupied during the Second World War. How did the French people receive you? Wonderfully. They were very kind. Of course, they were French, and they never liked the idea that you didn't speak their language correctly. And I often had experience where I would come up out of a metro, and I remember going to see a friend who was staying at a wonderful hotel called the Plaza Athene. And I said to this waiter in a cafe, Où est le Plaza Athene? And he said to me, You're American, speak English. <laughs> and I was horrified because I thought I said it quite correctly.
0: How, how was your French by the time you returned
1: home? Oh, it was fluid. I I had met people of all ages all backgrounds and so I really really handled it very well then
0: Could you talk about then how you got into the field of education abroad and the influence that your experience had on you. Um, What was it like to get into education abroad?
1: Well, the truth is, you talk about a profession. There was no profession of education abroad when I graduated from college in 1957. And in fact, I was like many young girls of that age. We all thought we were going to get married and have babies, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> I went, married a man from Washington and Lee University from Mississippi. I moved to Mississippi, a place absolutely foreign, foreign to a New Yorker, and I uh, had four children, and I raised them by myself. And my husband was never there, and so I, I decided that that was not a very uh, healthy atmosphere for my children, and we were divorced. And then I looked in the mirror, and I said, okay, what are you going to do now? You, have, you speak fluent French, and there's not a great field for that. But I decided that as long as I had children to educate, I would go to the University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi, and seek a degree, a master's in French, so that I could teach French. Things started rolling from there. I studied for a master's degree, I was given a job first as a graduate student teaching French and then actually hired half-time, and they said, we don't really have any more job for you, so would you like to be director of the language lab? And I said, well, yeah, all right, as long as a job comes up soon that gives me enough money that I can take care of my children. Well, what happened instead? was that students came to me and they said, we want to go to France just like you did when you were a student. And the university had no such program or anything or even sanctioned it. And so I started asking around and saying, I would like to take a small group of students in the summer when my children will not be here to Paris. I know how to do that. And I'd like to learn more so that if I have a student coming from who wants to go to Spain or, or Japan or Italy or whatever, I'm able to advise them and tell them what to do. And in the summer of 1971, I took my four children and went to France to tour around and find out what was going on in the educational systems. And I spoke to everybody on the street. I was absolutely shameless. I would pick up hitchhikers and tell them what, uh, that as long as they got in my car, they had to tell me why they were there, mostly Americans, I will say, and how they where, what were they doing uh, thumbing their way across. Europe or whatever, and so I learned a lot about such things. And this is so long ago that one of the first things I learned about was the international student identity card. And I don't even know if that exists anymore. Does it? Does it? CIE still has that? I S I C card. Well, I came back to Long Island, where my parents lived, and I said, I'm taking a day to go into New York City, and I'm going to go to two uh, operations organizations. And the first one is called the Council on International Educational Exchange, and the second one is called Institute of International Education. And I walked into these places, and I said, I want to become a study abroad advisor. And they said... Well, we don't really know how to help you, but we are publishing a few little booklets. And I met first Archer Brown, and she was wonderful, and she was helpful. And she said, since you live in Mississippi, you must meet a woman named Nancy McCormick at the University of Tennessee. So She's now Nancy McGlasson. Um, uh-huh, Nancy right. McGlasson, absolutely. And so I called and made an appointment to visit with her and we stopped in Knoxville Tennessee for a few hours for me to learn that this was a burgeoning field and it was exciting to get in at the on the ground floor there were materials there were there were meetings NAFSA had decided that they would allow the study abroad advisors to come because uh, they, NAFSA had started out as an organization for foreign student advisors to help students coming from other countries, but the Americans would knock on the door and they 'd say, "I want to be a foreign student. How do I do that?" And they 'd say, "Well, we don't know how you do that, but we 'll see if we can find out." So I became one of those people, and I answered the door, and I learned and I learned and I learned. And my university said, "Well, we can 't pay you to do this, but we 'll pay you to go to meetings." And that's really how I got started. I then was the, I had a half time job as director of the language lab, which was open 56 hours a week. I taught two French classes. And in my spare time, with my children and everything else, I began to become a study abroad advisor.
0: Yes, Mary Elizabeth, we met in the early 1980s when I had just started working with Uh ISAP, and you were. Had become the ISEP coordinator right. uh, at the University of Mississippi. Can you talk about those early years and what, uh, how you advise students about studying abroad through an well, organization like ours like, or any like other? Like yours, was, but but any truly, other?
1: I was trying to place us in the field and and and, and, and encourage students to seek. Uh, opportunities abroad. And so many of them would come to me, and they'd say, I can't really afford these very expensive programs that are run by other universities, and I'd like to go by myself. But I'm not really brave enough to go by myself, but I'm almost brave enough if I knew that I had somebody at an institution that would welcome me in some way. And I'm a I'm a, uh, a classicist, and I want to go to Greece, and I want to study at some institution, and there was no college year in Athens that I knew of at that time, so I I did research all the time. I was always finding out what was where. I started collecting a library, and I talked to people everywhere, and of course, many of the things I wanted to do I modeled after my own experiences, but I knew what a study abroad experience should provide. There should be support. There should be reentry and and not you're not hanging out there and then suddenly coming home and not knowing how to integrate what you had just learned you chose your program mostly based on your major it was not as i would say to students often an opportunity to get away because you weren't happy you were really going to use this as part of your education. So I was always in favor of long-term programs, one year or at least a, a full semester. The short-term programs, I realized, were good for people who might be studying language and need a little upgrading uh, of it. But I thought they didn't really penetrate the uh, the uh, environment as well. Not that they aren't, don't have a place, and I do feel that they do.
0: When, when you were at... Uh, the University of Mississippi, you yes. advised a lot of students, had right. a lot of students going, but this was also, uh, you were developing uh, your prof- own career and right. profession. You yeah. were working on a dissertation right. about education abroad, which I understand had to do with research on the history of education abroad. Uh, and then some ideas about the future at that time. Can you talk to us a little bit well, about that your dissertation okay. and what you learned I, I, and how I you don't
1: used it. know how many people will ever hear this but I don't know how many of them ever had a computer on their desk in the 19 early 1980s. I didn't and I always wanted one and I decided that I saw the possibilities in a computer that it could serve as a self-assessment instrument for students who needed to find out a lot of information. They didn't have to come to me all the time and I didn't have to spend hours reinventing the wheel with them. I would put together a program and then I would ask them a bunch of questions that uh, were the most general of uh, questions: Do you know where you want to go if you study abroad? Do you want to study a foreign language? Do you wish to study in your field? Do you uh, have you had experience abroad? And of course, the costs, and that was a major problem for a lot of people, especially in Mississippi. They weren't they weren't geared to the, doing this sort of thing. And when I went to a meeting, and I think it was really. In 1980, or maybe even 79, I'm not sure. What did, what year did ISEP start? 1979. Okay. I went to a meeting where the founder of ISEP, was a woman named Gretchen Carroll, and Father Bradley from Georgetown, and some other people, John Booth, old names but good names in the, in the field, and they were talking about this concept. And I was enthralled. And I went to my people... And I said, you're worrying about me sending too many of our students away. And we were in an economic crisis at that time in the early 80s. College tuitions were getting higher. The states weren't uh, supporting college uh, universities and things of that sort. And uh, so it was a very bad time to say, I think I'll send 10 students away from you for an academic year. And the students would go and take all their money and go somewhere else. And they'd say wait a minute, (laughs) we were hoping to give an academic opportunity to students, but we need the money, and you can't keep doing this to us. And ICEP solved that problem in the most amazing and wonderful ways. Not only did it give students the opportunity to spend their money, pay it at home, use their scholarships if they would, and then they would pay for an incoming student, but they would go abroad, and there would be and a, a, a safety net there, but they would be very independent. You couldn't choose a, a student who had to be handheld. They really needed some uh, to be independent and interested and knowledgeable of the country they were going to. And so that was where I found my education and, uh, hat, and I would teach them everything I felt they needed to know before they went. <laughs> you, you were very much a self-starter in um,
0: study abroad right. at the University of Mississippi. But as this career developed, you then moved on to the University of Kansas I as did. the director of study abroad. Yes. What do you think were some of the major differences uh, at that time?
1: This was in the 80s. I yeah, think. I, I, I moved there actually in, well, at the beginning of 1986, January. But I interviewed and they, they kept wooing me and I kept saying, I don't know, I've never been to Kansas. <laughs> it was hard enough to go to Mississippi from New York. <laughs> but I went and what did I find? I, I I think I've told you this before, but they gave a little uh, coffee, a coffee, not a cocktail party, a little coffee on Friday afternoon at five PM for me to meet faculty who are interested in the idea of their students going abroad, and I would say sixty people showed up. I was dumbfounded because where I came from in Mississippi everybody was at happy hour at five o'clock. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> wonderful faculty members and deans and everything came to meet me and talk to me and, and question me about the things I, I wanted to do, but also to teach me what they were doing. They had, without a doubt, without never, it's never changed, the oldest academic exchange in the Western Hemisphere between the University of Costa Rica and the University of Kansas, and that is still going strong. And I had just happened to have been on a Fulbright program to Costa Rica about two years before, where I learned a lot about their educational system. I felt that was a good selling point. I knew a lot about other parts of the world, and they, people had wonderful ideas that they wanted. They wanted everything from faculty exchanges to uh, student exchanges to group exchanges to. I mean, it was it was sort of an open door. So it was really integrated into the University of Kansas. It absolutely was.
0: And then uh, I believe when you went, there may have been one or two staff. Oh, working yes. and study abroad, <laughs> but by the time you retired,
1: that staff had grown to you know a whole um, large a operation. Large operation, and we didn't have a computer in our office. And I, that's the first thing I said. Wait a minute, where am I going to do my? my self-assessment program when we don't even own a computer. But I did do a really, I mean, if I do say so myself, I asked a lot of questions on my self-assessment prototype and I got help from absolutely some of the leaders in the field who thought this was a great idea. Some of the people didn't think it was a great idea because the IIE was publishing a book that every year, and I don't know if they still publish that book. Open Doors. Open Doors. Yes. And they wanted to be the only ones that held onto who who could go where and what the the, the institutions were. It was a wonderful listing, but they, they really weren't very helpful to me. They didn't want me to do what I wanted to do. And they were very nice about it, and I remember the people at NAFSA say things to me like, oh my goodness, they were talking about megabytes and, and things that I thought didn't really matter about <laughs> I wanted to do. I didn't care anything about what kind of computer people used or anything else. I didn't know enough to know not that I didn't know. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you was
0: uh, whether you separate or had separated your personal and professional life. Well, of course, And working I've... in education abroad, and and how did.
1: How did you grow, and did you develop friendships uh, in the field? Some of the best friendships I've ever had, and Marianne Grant is one of the longest and best, I have to say. But I met wonderful people, and in fact, we're here at a conference right now, and I met two of the people that I have known since the early 80s right there, and, and they're still in the field. But it's a growing and wonderful and vibrant open field for people, and I think they stay in it a while, and some have written wonderful materials, and they move on, but I had, of course, a full life with four children, and uh, that was my personal life, and then I had my professional life, and some faculty members didn't really want me to be the arbiter of what courses were uh, creditable abroad. And so I had to get the faculty committees together to to say, this is what they're telling us they're teaching our students, and this is what we tell them we're teaching their students, and we need to uh, get it together and, and be proud of what we are doing and learning and teaching and so on. Hey, you've, you've been retired for about 20 years. I have. I retired early. I mean, a little bit early. Yes, um,
0: uh-huh. but... Do you think education abroad and what you did, you know, your personal life and your professional life, uh, has made a difference in your retirement and how you have spent your retirement? Oh, well, Maybe you could talk about some of your personal experiences, even in your family.
1: Um, well, I've sent my th- children to study abroad, or I haven't, and, and it, some of them didn't want to go, and they were, <laughs> It was very <laughs> upsetting for me. But now I'm working on the grandchildren, and they're definitely going. But uh, I, I only took one. Child of mine, somewhere abroad, because I let the I traveled a lot, and I went to visit people that I had met through the years, and I, um, I've kept up with a lot of people. I, I don't keep up with the field as I would like. I know there are publications that I haven't seen. I used to love uh, uh, the um, transi- transitions abroad, Clay Hubs, but uh, I gather that. I was talking to Bill Hoffa last night and he told me it still exists on paper but not really there. No one's right. writing in it or publishing. Right. I know that since you've
0: retired you have taken every one of your nine grandchildren <laughs> on a trip abroad allowing I'm, them to choose where they wanted to go. I presume you use some of those experiences and what you learned to take absolutely. your children
1: um, your grandchildren My rather, grandchildren. Can you talk and, about
0: that a little bit? Well,
1: uh, it's been everywhere. I started off Slowly, by joining a group that was going to Tunisia, in about I can't remember was that about 1989 or 90. And of course now it's not the place it was when I was there. But one of our architecture professors and a and a uh, a man who had been in the Peace Corps there. Uh, well, he was the architecture professor, but then there was a classicist and what an incredibly wonderful experience for me and for my grandson who is now an architect in new york city as a result of having been taken on that trip and i went to france i went to spain i went to italy i let them choose japan was more exciting for me because i hadn't really i had been to japan but i hadn't really gone into the field of anime and went to studios where where they were doing animation and learning things Let's see. They took one of the, one of the girls to London for a week and ten plays, and she's now again making her way through Broadway and doing some things. And you brought one of your grandsons here to Greece. I certainly did in two nine years ago. No, what, what two thousand nine. I came here with Christopher, who was so eager. He was a very athletic boy, and he wanted to see where the Olympics started. And we had a marvelous time uh, just exploring. We came to Athens. We went all through the Peloponnesus. We went to Greece and to Santorini. So what more could you do? Well, it sounds to to me like it's a perfect
0: blend of... Your own education abroad, when that started, your professional life, and then being able to hand this off to your children in these wonderful trips that um, were very educational for you and your grandchildren. Right. Um, So it seems like a really good coming together of all those factors. It's really followed you through your whole life. Yes. Um, I would say. If you had a message for those uh, people who are coming up in the field now, what would you say to
1: them? Gosh. I would say that getting intimately involved with the students during this entire process has been a very good thing for me and for them. I still hear from all my students, and they, they come up to me in strange places and say, didn't you send me abroad to such and such a place? And I remember our orientation program, and I remember our... Meetings, and i would uh, I hate to say that I did get to go often to check on things i started uh, uh, I thought often to go into some places that it was important for them to have an orientation program abroad and so I set up several and then they would go and either live with families or live on their own and uh, and, and in groups or not in groups i mean it was it, it was terrific, so I feel that I didn't look at a student as being an annoyance or a problem. I loved everything about learning about them and hearing from them. And I still, as I say, hear from them. So that, I think, is enthusiasm, I would say.
0: Wonderful. This has been a great um, way to reminisce about (laughs) your experience and how the field has grown in the last few decades. Um, And thank you for giving us your insights. Thank you.
1: On the next Forum Storytellers podcast. Well, it's my privilege and pleasure to talk to my old friend Alexis Philotopoulos, whose name over 20 years I've never pronounced properly. Thank you, thank you, Mike, for being kind. Mm